Welcome to Bentry. Can we give Jesus one more Thanksgiving of praise today? Thank you, worship team, for leading us. Wow. We welcome you, whether you're online or in person today. We're so thankful that you were here. Maybe you're watching from all around the world or somewhere in the country. We're grateful that you've carved out these few moments to be together. My name is Libin Abraham. I get the joy of serving here at Bentry, and we're so grateful that you are here today. Whether this is your first time or this is your Sunday morning deal every week, we're thrilled that you are here. Hey, yesterday we had Christmas Fest, and it was remarkable. We had hundreds, if not more, families from all around the community, hundreds of our families that attended and served to give our community a taste of what kindness and grace and generosity is. And so I want to give yourself a hand for an amazing day yesterday. We had a car show, over 50 cars, uh, just families who get to experience Bentry for the first time ever. Yesterday, we also had our first showing of our yearly Christmas drama, and it's an amazing opportunity to experience the grace of the season. And today, if you haven't had a chance to go last night, we have one more opportunity this afternoon at 3 p.m. The Cowboys aren't playing this afternoon, so might as well grab some lunch lunch after this and uh, come join us at the Christmas drama. Marjorie Talcott and her family lived during the Great Depression. It was in the late 20s and early 30s. Her, her husband, and their little six-year-old boy named Peter. Well, Christmas came around, and they were scraping their way through during the Great Depression, as most families in America were. And they realized they could not purchase any gifts or toys that year for anybody. So they sat down little Peter and told him the news. said, honey, there will be no store-brought gifts this year. Try doing that with your son or daughter and just see how it goes. And so they said, you know what, we can't purchase gifts this year, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to imagine we had all the money in the world and all the time and ability to purchase whatever we wanted. And we're going to draw pictures of what we would love to give to each other. So there'll be picture presents. We can't buy them, so we're going to draw them and hang them on the tree. So uh, the Talcott family had this conversation and they went off to work. And before they knew it, it was already Christmas Day. And so on the morning of Christmas, the family woke up and they found their bare, skimpy little Christmas tree made magnificent through picture presents. And these pictures were lavish. They were incredible. They were luxurious. There was a a red speedboat for dad and and a a diamond bracelet and a fur coat for mom. For little Peter, there were camping tents and swimming pools all drawn up on this tree. It was little Peter's opportunity to bring out his drawing of what he wanted to give if they could give anything so he brought out a piece of paper and with crayons he had drawn a dad and a mom and a little six-year-old boy just laughing together with their arms around each other and on the top of this painting he wrote the word us us it was a gift of us Marjorie would write about that time and said that was the most meaningful richest time in their entire family Because they realized the greatest gift was the gift of presence, the gift of us. Emmanuel, God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. Think about it. What a breathtaking statement. Not just God above us or beyond us or even for us. That's amazing. God for us. It's amazing. But beyond that, God is with us. He would be made one with us. See, God looked through the timeline of history and he saw all of the sin, all of the hatred, all of the selfishness, 
All of the injustice, all of the ways that we would make this a dark, dark world. And God, who had anything and could give anything, decided the only hope for humanity was himself. Not another prophet or an angel or even a program, but a person himself, God, with us. And 2,000 years ago, God would take on skin. He would become one of us. He would gift us with his presence. This month, thousands of people all around the world are celebrating Christmas. For some, Christmas is merely commercial. For others, it's a time to get some time off from work and be with family. For some, it's a time to hang lights and buy gifts and host parties. And those things may be meaningful and they can be. But I want to be sure that we don't miss the essence, the heart and soul of the truth we are celebrating. That Christmas is Christ in us. Christmas is Christ in us. That God who came to be with us, Emmanuel who came to be with us, now by the power of his spirit is in you. He has taken residence not just around you, not just to be with you, but to be inside of you. And what we need now in our history, in our nation, in our world more than ever before is for God to rekindle the wonder of Christ in us. The power of Christ in us. The hope of Christ in us. The wonder of Christ in us. The way we're going to ask God to do that in our own heart this December, this Christmas season, is to go back to Isaiah and look at a prophecy written before Jesus' birth, 700 years before the birth of Jesus. 700 years before the birth of Jesus, about who he would be and what he came to do. Maybe you're here today or joining us online and you were on a journey to discover the Christian faith. Is God who he is? Is Jesus true? Is the Bible true? And one of the many things that authenticate the Christian faith and message are the prophecies that have been fulfilled. Prophecies written in the Bible, written in scripture across hundreds, if not thousands of years, written across multiple countries and continents by people who didn't know each other, but they all came to be true. I'm not just talking about here and there are a few prophecies that could have coincidentally come true. I'm talking about over 2,000 prophecies written in scriptures that have already been fulfilled. Did you know that about the birth of Jesus, about the life of Jesus, there are over 300 prophecies? Yeah, 300 prophecies about Christmas, about who Jesus would be, about his life and birth. Prophecies about that he would be born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin, that he would grow up in Nazareth, that he would come through the lineage of David, that he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver, that he would be betrayed by his own. Even a prophecy about how he would die. He would die through execution on a cross. And the prophecy about the crucifixion was written hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented. Before death on a cross was even invented. And a prophecy that he would not stay dead, but that he would rise from the grave. Jesus fulfilled every single one of the prophecies about him. Mathematicians and statisticians have looked at all the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, and they have concluded he has to be God. There was no way that a person could fulfill even a fraction of these prophecies coincidentally or by happenstance. It has to be divine. Scientists and statisticians say that for one person to fulfill just eight of the 300 prophecies about him would be the likelihood of one out of 10 to the 17th power. 
One with 17 zeros after it. This is not possible. The likelihood of one person fulfilling 48 of the 300 prophecies about Jesus is the likelihood of one out of 10 to the 157th power. One with 157 zeros under after it. It's just no way. But the same statisticians looked at the life of Jesus, the times of Jesus, when these prophecies were written, they've concluded these are true. These are historical facts. He has to be God. Let me tell you, just as God was faithful and true to fulfill all 300 of the promises about his birth and life, he is also true and faithful to fulfill every one of the promises about his second coming. Just as he came once, he will come again. And this time he will not come as an infant. He will come as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And every eye will see him. He will be true to his promise. So in this Advent season, we are looking back, reflecting at the coming of Jesus to Bethlehem. And we are looking forward with great joy and anticipation at his appearing. He will be true then as well. The prophecy that we're going to be revisiting is in Isaiah chapter 9, written 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And the times of this prophecy are this. The northern kingdom of Israel had been taken captive by the Assyrians. So northern Israel is demolished by the Assyrian empire. And now the southern kingdom is under the same threat. And so Isaiah is writing to those under the threat of captivity, war, and exile. The northern kingdom is already captive. Now the southern kingdom is waiting the same threat, the kingdom of Judah. So Isaiah is writing to a people who are living between war and exile. Because soon, within a few decades, the Babylonians will actually overtake the Assyrians. And they will be the Babylonians that take the southern kingdom of Judah, of Israel, into captivity. They're living between a rock and a hard place. Between an exile and war. That's almost as bad as you want Chick-fil-A on a Sunday. And then you realize it's Sunday. Like, seriously, why is it that we want chicken? Okay, maybe I'm getting hungry a little bit. But this is, this is the hard thing. They're between an exile and a war. And there is incredible pressure coming from those remaining in the northern kingdom to join forces with Syria and try to go to battle with the Assyrians. So either you muster up enough strength and men and power to go fight the strongest empire in the world, or you stay low waiting to be taken captive. It's a time of chaos, darkness, and distress. Imagine this. Politically, it's chaotic. You don't know who your enemy is and who your ally is. You can't decipher them. It's a time of political chaos. King Ahaz is in power. And King Ahaz has been noted, written in the scriptures, to be one of the most unfaithful, wicked men of all time. He has set up places of worship to false gods and led an entire nation away from God, immersed in sin. Political wars on religiously, it's a nightmare. No one to lead them in the way of God. Socially, there are, they're in wartime. Just the basic necessities are missing. No, nothing to stabilize the nation of Israel. They're in a time of famine. These are hard times. Those in the southern kingdom are not just wondering what Assyria or Babylon will do to them. They're wondering what God will do to them. Because they know that their sin is real, that they're walking away from God. They know there's a real judgment awaiting them. Isaiah describes the condition that they're in and says in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 22, this is what they're living through when Isaiah writes chapter 9. 
Verse 22 of chapter 8 says, they will look toward the earth. And that word is, you can look north, east, west, wherever you can look. Every four directions, you can look toward the earth. And what do you see? You see only distress, darkness, and the gloom of affliction. And they will be driven into thick darkness. Merry Christmas, everybody. <laughs> it's bad enough when it's dark, but it's bad, it's even worse, let's say badder, it's worse. <laughs> when it's dark and cloudy, you can't see a star for miles. But not only is it dark and cloudy, but there's a storm brewing. And there are no streetlights for miles. What you see is utter thick darkness. Notice the words he uses here. Distress, darkness, gloom, affliction, utter darkness. I don't know if over the last two years you've used some of those words to describe our world. I have. A world in pandemic. A world in political chaos. A world with such injustice and wickedness all around us. You have shootings like last Tuesday where kids are killed in a school. I use those words when I think about religious leaders, Christian leaders, pastors who are supposed to hold up the banner of righteousness, living in sin, causing shame to the name of Jesus. Darkness, distress, and affliction. I wonder if you've used those words or something along the lines of that to describe your marriage, your job, wounded relationships in your life, maybe the loss of a loved one, and it feels like light has gone out. Maybe even utter darkness. You're looking around all over your home, your family, your finances, your job, and you can't seem to find hope anywhere. Isaiah's words are thousands of years distant from us. His world is so distant, but his words deeply mirror ours sometimes, don't they? The circumstances may be very different in his day, but the condition may be all too similar to ours. So what do you do when you find yourself in that kind of a predicament? Well, there's two temptations. One is to be full of despair, to turn to despair. And despair is a complete absence and lack of hope. Despair says what it is today, it'll always be. Your season is your sentence. You will never get out of this. That's despair. There is no hope. The second option is to turn towards self-determination. So despair and self-determination. So while despair says there is no remedy, self-determination says, I am the remedy. We are the remedy. Despair says there's no hope, but self-determination says, only hope is you. It's on your shoulders to fix everything. So get the right people in your group. Try to equal the balances of justice. Try to be God. Solve the problems. Pull yourself by your own bootstraps. It's all on your shoulders. You carry the weight of fixing it all. And both of those options, despair and self-determination, leave us in the dark, never to see the light of day. So what do we do? What does Isaiah say to do when we find ourselves in such darkness and chaos? Well, Isaiah, throughout this amazing oracle, as he's predicting gloom and judgment and, and distress, Time and time again, God removes the veil and allows Isaiah for just a few moments here and there to peel through the storm, through the cloud, and the, it's as if the, the clamoring wave sees. And the torrential storm pauses, and he can, through the distance, 
sight in the horizon, a ray of hope, a ray of sunshine. So Isaiah sees through the storm what's coming ahead. And what's coming ahead is the hope of the world. But to his shock and to his reader's surprise, the hope that's coming, the ray of hope, the ray of sunshine through the storm isn't another human king. It's not another world power that they would look to. It's actually a child to be born. That's the hope. A child to be born. Isaiah 7, Isaiah spots in this moment the ray of hope. And he says this in Isaiah 7 verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. This is the ray of hope. This is the glimpse of hope that he sees. It's a person. It's a child with a name. Emmanuel. We find ourselves in the dark. We don't turn to despair or to self-determination. We turn to Emmanuel. Despair says, look down because you have no hope. Self-determination says, look inward because you are the only hope. But Emmanuel says, look up. God is your hope. He is the only one who can solve today's problem. He is the only one worth trusting in. He is the only one worth anchoring your life in. So for every area of darkness and chaos, only Emmanuel, God with us, can illuminate our life with the presence of God. Emmanuel, God with us. That's the direction of our heart. That's the direction of our soul. Isaiah 8 describes the world. Look all around the world when you see darkness, distress, utter thick darkness. But Isaiah 9, everything changes because Isaiah has caught another glimpse of hope. Isaiah begins chapter 9 with an entirely different perspective. And he says this in Isaiah 9, verse 1 to 2. Nevertheless, Paul's there. Nevertheless, circle that in your Bible. Get that in your soul. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times where he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. Verse 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. Isaiah, in the midst of an oracle of a prophecy of gloom and judgment, he springs forth with hope and says, nevertheless, nevertheless, nevertheless. Yes, it's dark. Yes, the earth is covered with darkness. But nevertheless, there is a day coming when light will shine. When I think about the Christmas story this season, I'm thinking about one word. It's the word nevertheless. 400 years of silence and chaos. And confusion, but nevertheless, a savior came. The shepherds were insignificant, forgotten out in the fields all alone, but nevertheless, to them, a great light shined. Mary was just a teenager, Joseph just a carpenter, Bethlehem was a sheep's town, Nazareth had been forgotten. They were just teenagers, but nevertheless, they were favored of God. Never. The less. The Christmas story is a celebration of a nevertheless story. It's a celebration. It's a telling of a nevertheless story into darkness, into utter chaos and confusion. Nevertheless happened. 
Think about all the things you would describe as dark, affliction, gloom, all of the scenarios and circumstances you're living through that are dark. Here's what I want you to do. I want you at the end of it to put a nevertheless. This Christmas season, you're invited at the end of your reality and circumstance to put a nevertheless, just like Isaiah does here. Your family may be dysfunctional, but nevertheless. Your marriage may be hanging on by a thread, but nevertheless. You may have been wounded. You may be hurt. You may be looking at an empty chair this holiday season around the dinner table. But nevertheless, there is hope. There is a light that is shining into the world. This Christmas narrative we're celebrating is an invitation to put nevertheless right in the middle of hopelessness. It's a placement of nevertheless in the midst of hopelessness. Isaiah says, nevertheless, this gloom won't last forever. This darkness will be overcome. Isaiah goes on to list a few names of cities and regions. He talks about the way of the sea, the land east of the Jordan, even the Galilee of the nations. Other translations, the Galilee of Gentiles. These towns that Isaiah is describing and naming by name are the first towns that were destroyed by the Assyrians. These are the towns currently demolished by evil, by the Assyrian Empire. They are the first towns to be overtaken and destroyed and taken into captivity. So Isaiah says, nevertheless, into the very towns and cities that have been destroyed by the Assyrians, nevertheless, when this child is born, he will bring honor and glory to those very same towns. The same towns demolished, the same towns covered in darkness will be the same area that is illuminated with the light of the Messiah, with the light of the Christ. Isn't that just like God? To birth hope right into the middle of despair, into the thing that you've labeled hopelessness, God speaks nevertheless into the person you've given up on, the situation you've given up, the dream that God has birthed in your heart, you have abandoned and given up on, into that very thing God speaks nevertheless. The enemy meant for evil, he turns it around. The thing you walked away from could be the very place of your next miracle. As I says, these towns devastated, demolished, are the very places that God's going to restore his light. And glory, nevertheless. And one of the towns, one of the regions is called the Galilee of the Nations. It's the land west of the, the Jordan River. The Galilee of Nations. This is where all the non-Jews lived. The Gentiles, the nations of the world lived here. This is a group of people who considered themselves out of God's plan. Surely light will never shine on us. It's the shepherds. It's you and I. If we're not Jewish, it's us. It's the people who can never get to God, but Isaiah says, even for them, there is a nevertheless coming. God hasn't forgotten you. You might have counted yourself out. You might not be in the lineage you thought you should be in. You might not have the gifts and passions you thought you should have. But nevertheless, Isaiah is saying, even for those who have counted themselves unworthy to be in covenant with God, even for them, there is a nevertheless of hope because of Jesus. Because even on them, light is going to dawn. Even on them, light will shine. That's exactly what happened. Jesus was born 700 years later. He began to do his ministry. And notice how Matthew records the ministry of Jesus in Matthew 4, verse 13. Matthew describes it and says, He left Nazareth 
and went to live in Capernaum by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, along the road by the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, of the nations. The people who live in darkness have seen a great light. And for those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Isaiah prophesied it. Jesus walked it out. He went to the Galilee of nations. He went to the very towns demolished by war and exile and brought the light and glory of God there. Next week, we're going to look at the throne names, the descriptive names that Isaiah gives about this child to be born, a son to be given. But today, I want to zero in on three particular promises in verse 1 through 4 that Isaiah says this child, this Messiah coming, will bring to the world. Three promises, three anchors of hope for those in exile, those in war, those in famine. Three things for you and I to anchor our life in about who Jesus is and what he came to bring. The first thing that Isaiah says in chapter 9 is that Jesus will bring light to those in darkness. Jesus will bring light to those in darkness. Look at verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. The land of darkness. The word that Isaiah uses to talk about the land of darkness is the same word David uses in Psalm 23 to talk about the shadow of death. The shadow of death, the land of darkness. It's possible that this Christmas season there are lights up in your home, but there is no light in your heart. You are listening to festive music all around you, but you are grieving on the inside. Because the light has gone out. One grief, one disappointment, one letdown after another. And it seems like every light of hope, every glimmer of life has gone out. You may even feel like you're walking in the shadow of death. But it is what Isaiah is saying when Christ the Messiah comes, when he is taken resident in your heart. Even for those in the shadow of death, in utter thick darkness, there is light shining. There is a light for the world that Jesus brings to us. David said, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because thou art with me. What does that sound like? Thou art with me. God is with me. God is with us, Emmanuel. Isaiah and David are saying the same thing. In the land of utter darkness, even in the shadow of death, you can walk you can be free of fear. You can be free of confusion. Why? Because of Emmanuel. He is with you in the dark. He is with you, illuminating your heart, your soul, with beautiful, glorious light that cannot be dimmed. We're going to also be in the book of John because John talks about how Jesus brought these things to us. Notice John verse 4 of chapter 1. John 1 verse 4 and 5. In him, meaning Jesus, was life. And that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet darkness did not overcome it. Darkness cannot overcome the light of Christ. No amount of hurt, no amount of evil, no amount of injustice can overcome the light of Christ that he dawns in your soul. 
John 1, verse 9 to 10, the true light, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. Light came in the form of a child. God Almighty, the infinite one, came as an infinite, and we didn't recognize him. We didn't expect light to show up in skin, but he did. Jesus said it about himself in John 8, verse 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He is the light that's offering himself to you. So in the midst of your darkness, Isaiah is saying, put your eyes on Christ. I don't know about you, but at least here in Dallas, wherever you're watching from in Dallas, by 6 p.m., it's like midnight. It's super dark. All you want to do is put your pajamas on and drink some tea or whatever. It's the most unproductive time of the year. Nothing good happens after six now. It's because the winter darkness is elongated and light is shortened. But what I love about this season, even at six, 6.30, those little timers go off and Christmas lights start appearing. I think it's sort of a, a reminder just in the Advent season that into darkness light came. For us to enjoy and cherish the light, you got to know what it used to be in darkness. And for some of you who are in darkness, one day when you encounter the light of Jesus, you will look back and realize the moment that the gospel of Christ sparked light in your heart. Into darkness light came. So here's what I want you to do the rest of December. Go out after six and drive around. Or if you're coming home from work past six, look around and see the light in darkness. And when you see Christmas, here's your action item. When you see Christmas lights, when you see lights in the dark, take a moment and simply say to God, thank you for sending light. Thank you for sending light. Thank you for sending light into my heart, into my marriage, into my singleness. Thank you for sending light into my despair. I didn't deserve it, but you sent me light. Use every evening this month to simply pause and say, Light came to me. I was in the shadow of death, in the land of darkness, and still light came. Light has a name. His name is Jesus. Isaiah says this great child that is to be born will bring light to the world into darkness. Second of all, Isaiah says he will bring joy to those in despair. Jesus will bring joy to those in despair. Look at verse 3. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. Isaiah is writing in the midst of war and exile, but he is inviting people to rejoice as if they're free. He's writing in a time of famine, but he's inviting people to rejoice as if it's harvest time. He is writing in the midst of captivity and exile, but he's inviting people to rejoice as if the war is already over and they're dividing the spoils. Isaiah, have you lost your mind? Have you left reality? Why are you writing these things when the reality of what we're going through looks so different? Isaiah sees reality, but Isaiah has gotten a revelation. He sees reality, famine, captivity, darkness, but he's gotten a glimpse of revelation. 
A child is coming. A savior will be born. Light will shine. And so right in the middle between reality and revelation, Isaiah's got a choice to make. Am I going to respond to my reality or will I respond to a revelation? Will I respond to what I see in the natural, what I see through my physical eyes, this reality of doom and gloom, or will I respond with hope at the revelation of Jesus, at the lights coming? And Isaiah chooses to respond to revelation over reality because for Isaiah, the revelation of what God has said is just as true, if not more, than his reality. Isaiah knows without a shadow of a doubt that this Jesus coming, this Messiah coming, will bring joy to those in the shadow of death. He knows without a shadow of doubt that those in darkness will have joy. Those in the shadow of death will experience life. So before even revelation becomes reality, Isaiah is, re is rejoicing with joy. Because notice how he uses past tense in this prophecy about something that will happen in the future. This child has already increased joy. The people have already rejoiced before him. You can respond to reality or to revelation. It's a moment when you look at what you see versus what God has said. Isaiah is saying, I see the reality, but I'm responding with joy at the revelation of who Jesus is. Because... I can respond in a time of war with joy because Jesus is my victory. I can respond with joy in a time of famine because Jesus, this child to be born, is my daily bread. I can respond with joy in a time of captivity and exile and war because Jesus is my freedom. He doesn't just give me light. He doesn't just give me freedom. He doesn't just give me joy. He is those things. So wherever he is present, those things are there. Light isn't the absence of darkness. It's the presence of Jesus that drives out the darkness. Joy isn't the absence of problems. It's the presence of the Messiah, this Christ, the child, who brings joy because he is joy. He is your victory. He is your freedom. So wherever you are, the revelation is Jesus. And if Emmanuel is true, if God is with us, despite of the circumstance and condition and reality, we can find hope and joy. Jesus said it like this, back to John. John 15, verse 9 to 11. As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. So remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Notice how Jesus brings joy. He gives to us his own joy so that our joy will be complete in him. This is not a joy from the outside in. This is a joy from the inside out. The presence of Christ completing joy in us. And what is the source of this joy? Jesus says it here. The source of your joy is that Jesus today, in this moment, wherever you are, whatever you've done, wherever you've been, he in this moment loves you as the Father has loved him. You don't need any more good news than that. Just as God the Father eternally has loved the Son, this inseparable, this amazing love towards his son. Jesus is saying to you and to you and to you, I have loved you with the exact same love. There is nothing you could 
do to remove this love from you because I've loved you with the same love the Father has loved me. So remain in my love. Cherish my love. Abide in it. Bask in my love. And the more you remain in the love of Jesus, the more the joy of Jesus will remain in you. His love is your joy. The security of his love is the permanence of your joy. Jesus says, I've come to make your joy complete. Psychologists have actually termed the word Christmas depression. It's an odd grouping of words. Or the holiday gloom. What they're saying is during the month of Christmas, a time of rest can quickly become a time of stress. Like you're spending more money this month than you've ever had this year probably. Maybe money you don't have. Swiping that credit card and come January you'll realize. You're trying to cram in so much into your schedules. Going to parties with people you don't even like. Buying gifts for all kinds of people. And you are cramming in so much into this one month. Into your heart and your schedule. That a time of rest has become a time of stress. The Christmas depression. Here's what I want to ask you to do. Don't let that be the case. This is to be a time of increased joy. Not increased stress. An increased joy. So carve out the time. Carve out the space you need this month to let joy increase deep within you. Think about the gift of Christ. Think about the work of salvation that this child who was born in Bethlehem 2,000 some years ago would go to a cross for you and through the work of Calvary, he would pay the penalty of your sin. On account of his righteousness, you will now become children forever with God. That your eternity is secure. You have his life. You have his joy within you. Christ came to bring light into darkness and deep abiding joy into despair. So one more thing Isaiah says about this child to be born. He will bring freedom to those who are oppressed. Freedom to the oppressed. Light to darkness, joy to despair, and freedom to the oppressed. Verse 4. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke, and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. In Bible times, yoke was a bar of wood placed on the shoulder of an oxen or cattle, sort of like this. It's a weighty material placed on the shoulder of oxen. What it would do is when this weight is placed on the oxen, it diminishes their strength. Just by the mere activity of carrying the weight, they have strength for nothing else. So the plowman could just use a staff or a rod and prod and pick and move the yoke and it could move the animal. They were manipulated. They were controlled totally by the rod of their oppressor because the weight of the yoke was so heavy. They could not move on their own volition. They were moved by the rod, the staff of the oppressor. In slavery times, when people were treated in such inhumane ways, the same yoke was placed on them, the yoke of oppression. Isaiah uses that picture, that imagery, and says when Jesus comes... As light, as joy, he's coming as freedom. He's coming to shatter the yoke of oppression. He's coming to remove this weight of oppression, bondage that's controlled the heart of humanity. And not only is he shattering the yoke of oppression, he is destroying, shattering the rod, the staff of the oppressor. 
This is freedom. This is what freedom looks like. Of course, God would rescue Israel out of the Assyrian captivity and the Babylonian captivity and all their enemies. But what God had in mind was the oppression of the human soul. Not simply political freedom or social freedom, but freedom of the heart, freedom of your soul and my soul. Our soul was weighed down with the oppression of sin and guilt. We were incapable of loving God, obeying God, responding to him. We carried on our shoulders the punishment of our sin, the consequences of rebellion against God that will lead us into a forever eternity apart from God. No hope on our own, no life on our own. It was a bondage. It was an oppression of sin and guilt, and we could not work ourselves out of it. We were in despair because no amount of self-determination or religion or sacrifice could save us. But then a nevertheless moment happened. Jesus, the light of the world, the hope of the world, the joy of the world, the freedom giver to the world entered our story. His sacrifice broke the oppression off of us. His resurrection freed us once and for all. Amen. And through the cross of Jesus, through the resurrection of Christ, he has broken the power of sin, the bondage of the enemy. He has purchased you from the kingdom of darkness, moved you into the kingdom of light. He has taken you from guilt into grace. He has made you his child. Free forever. Jesus says it like this in John 8, verse 36. Jesus responded. He said, I truly tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Anyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. You are oppressed. But, verse 35, a slave does not remain in the house forever, but a son does remain forever. So if the son sets you free, you really will be free. We say you are free and free in? Indeed. When Jesus liberates your soul, when he becomes your savior, your Messiah, and you are in him, you are a son, you are a daughter with him forever because you are forever free. Once and for all, Jesus on the cross of Calvary through his death and resurrection liberated you from oppression. And every single day, this is the invitation Jesus makes to you and I. Every single moment, including right now, here is Christ's invitation to you. Jesus said in Matthew 11, verse 28 and 30, come to me, come, draw near, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. And what do I do? I give you rest. Not rules. Not a paper for you to sign and fill out an application. No, no. I give you rest. Come to me this Christmas. Come to me this season and I will give you rest. Verse 29. Take upon my yoke. Here's the word yoke again. Take upon my yoke and learn from me. Why? Because I am lowly and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. When we are under the oppression of the enemy, that yoke is weighty and oppressive. But when we take on the yoke of Jesus, he takes on our weight. His yoke is light. It's joyful to bear. When we yoke up with Jesus, something reversible happens. Rather than this yoke being weighty and oppressive and Binding, it's freeing, it's liberating because Jesus carries a weight and we just do the following. 
He is strong enough to carry the weight of our sin, the weight of our soul, all on him. So you take on his yoke, he takes on your weight. He takes on your darkness, he takes on your distress, and he carries it. And you get the joy of simply following. He gives you rest for your soul. I wonder if this December, has light gone out? Has joy decreased? Do you feel oppressed? Do you feel in bondage to sin? I want to take you to these words of Isaiah that give us a revelation of who Jesus is. And if Isaiah's audience could take these words and look forward with hope for 700 years to come about the birth of a child, and those words prophetically in the future will give hope, how much for on this side of eternity, on this side of the cross, we don't simply look forward with hope, we look backwards with gratitude that Jesus has come. Light has entered, not may or one day will. No, he has come. Joy has come. Your freedom has come. And we look forward to experiencing it every single day of our life. Would you bow your heads with me today? Maybe you're here today and life feels more dark than light, more in despair than joy, more in bondage than freedom. Christ is inviting you. Come. Come to me. You're tired. You're weary. You're tired of religion. Here is my yoke. It's the rhythm of grace. My power. My strength. It's Emmanuel. Christ in you. Come to him today. Would you open your heart to him? And ask for light to rekindle. God, would you do it? For joy to increase. Freedom to be pervasive in every part of your soul. Christ, if you set us free, we are free indeed. Over the bondage of addiction, of the past, of hurts, wounds, and betrayal, today let freedom ring. May the one who was born in Bethlehem be born afresh in the depths of our soul. So we come to you, Jesus, as you invite us. We yoke up with you. With joy, we relinquish the weight of our sin. The weight of our guilt, the weight of worry and anxiety. We take on your yoke as you take on our weight. Thank you for coming. Thank you that in this season we can hit the reset button and ask you to rekindle hope, the depths of our being. Will you do that for every single one? And if there's somebody here under the sound of my voice who has yet to follow Jesus, yet to yoke up with you, may this be the day that they experience freedom once for all, light and joy that only you can bring. Emmanuel, God with us, Christ in us. Do it today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen. 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 Can we give Jesus a clap offering for his goodness in our life? Thank you, church family, so much for joining us today. If you're online, we've got some next steps for you to take. We're grateful that you are with us today. For those in the room, we've got some next steps for you as well. Maybe you're here and you need to take your next step of faith, as Michelle talked about earlier. We would love to see you. Maybe it's to join a group. Maybe it's to place your faith in Christ, to join our church, to be baptized. We invite you to meet us in the prayer room or meet us in the welcome center. We would love to walk with you your next steps. We have to see you at the drama if you haven't been there yet. We love this season and we invite you to share life. So go on our website. There are
plenty of opportunities that you can invite friends, neighbors, and family to. We love you. God bless you. Have a great rest of the day.